Hello, my name is Declan Deneen, welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode, a guest on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another. Games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. My guest on today's show is Adriel Wallach, and this was so much fun to record. She was so... Um, I mean, she's just a very interesting person and very charming and just, just had such a great time. Um, and, and just she's done so much, uh, so many interesting things, you know. She used to work on satellites and she made a game every week for a year. And, of course, she set up the, the train jam, which is an annual game jam, which unsurprisingly is on a train. Um, and it's a group of developers literally on a train traveling to GDC and they make games in that sort of short window of time um just yeah really good chat i think you're gonna really enjoy it um and one of the one of the things we we sort of talk about um in terms of sort of the creative process i suppose is is don't get paralyzed by choice you know always keep making new things always keep trying new things because you never know where these things may lead you um so one of the things i did with this show when i first started i mean it is um, primarily this interview show. I want to hear about the way games have affected people's lives. Uh, but I've, I've set up this sort of side project with the show called Autosave. I've only done two of them so far, uh, and I'm working on a third at the moment, and I'm actually going to be doing a fourth next week. And Autosave is me basically just, I don't know, trying different things. Um, and earlier in the year, I did an episode all about the Global Game Jam, where I spent a weekend kind of camped in uh, the the Glasgow location and followed a few teams while they made games over a weekend and I was really pleased with with how it turned out and people seem to really like it so next weekend uh, in Glasgow there's an event uh, at the dry gates called Glas games and I'm going to try and do a similar sort of thing so this is like it's basically just like a fun video game day so it's organized by a guy called Simon Marshall and it's a room in a pub with loads of games and tournaments and competitions and just generally go and have fun with games and people. Um, so I'm really looking forward to it. I'm not quite sure how the episode is going to turn out and um, we'll just see what sort of footage I managed to pick up on the day. Um, but that'll be sort of the next episode, uh, hopefully. Um, immediately, I regretted saying that because that means I'm going to have to spend all day on Sunday editing. But that's okay. That's fine. Um, it's always good to give yourself uh, deadlines. So if you are if you're going along to Glass Games and you happen to see a guy sat in a corner with a pair of headphones, sat at a MacBook, um, please do come and say hello. Um, I will probably come and say hello eventually because I need to get all all sorts of uh, of footage. But I'm really looking forward to it. I think it'll be a, a fun day and also a, a decent episode afterwards. Um, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can email. It's checkpointspodcast at gmail dot com. Uh, also on Twitter at checkpoints show and on Facebook at uh, Checkpoints Podcast. It's very important to have consistent branding. You can also follow me. It's at Declan Deneen, D-E-C-L-A-N-D-I-N-E-E-N. Uh, as always, um, if you enjoy the show, it would be hugely um, appreciated if you would rate it or review it on iTunes. I mean, all podcasts say this, but it's because it is, you know, it's, it's, it's really useful. It gets more people, uh, more people's ears on the show, which is always uh, a good thing. 
well, not always, mostly a good thing. Um, but I mean, if you, if you, if you just know someone who you think might enjoy it, please do tell them and tweet about it, all that sort of, uh, good stuff. <clears throat> Excuse me, let's do a, a little cough there. I'm trying not to edit these, right? You know, I do these sort of just before I start sort of the final edit of the episode. And honestly, the amount of, the amount of times I do them is getting quite embarrassing. So I'm trying to do, do them in a one So no, no cuts, uh, no edits, uh, again, this is probably something I'm going to come to regret, but, well, we'll see how it goes. Anyway, let's not uh, ramble on. I hope you enjoy this episode. I hope you continue to enjoy these episodes. You can always go back and listen to the back catalogue, too. There's loads of amazing guests, um, including today's. Honestly, that was clumsy. Now I want to go back and edit that, but I've uh, I've promised myself not to. And there's a dog barking outside. Um, right, this, is, this isn't going well. Let's, let's get on with the show. It's a good chat, so... I'll see you next week with a new episode of New Guest. Let's uh, let's listen to my chat with Adriel Wallach. And I tend to work more on US sleep schedules just because that's kind of the contract work that I end up doing a lot of times is in the US. Okay. So it makes more sense to stay up late and wake up late. And it makes you feel super cool as well. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. Um, so yeah, what what is it like? What what are you working on at the minute? What is your like day to day? Um, so right now, right now, I'm sort of focusing mostly on contract work, just because got to pay the bills and whatnot. So I do I do freelance software engineering, mostly games focused. So I'm working on like a small mobile mobile fantasy RPG text adventure is kind of the best way to put it. That sounds fun. Yeah. It's it's cool because the guy I'm working with on it is like sort of from the old pen and paper like era, you know, and so he's never really designed a video game before. It's always been board games, and so there's a lot of like board games and pen and paper and card games sort of stuff coming through it in the design, which is nice. That's that's interesting. So like for stuff like that, I'm like I I, I have um, like zero experience with with video game design. I just I just love video games, um, mm-hmm. and like so. For, for a few people I've spoken to recently have been been doing that. They'll work on their own projects and they'll also do like contract work. So yeah. where does that come from? Is that all just like networking? Yeah, a lot of it is networking. I mean, the nice thing about being a software engineer and like a decent software engineer is that everybody always sort of needs a programmer for something. Yeah. You know, and and my contract work is the stuff that I am looking to get like super creative. You know satisfaction out of or anything so a lot of it a lot of it is just not being picky and always just sort of having your feelers out for people who are looking for work you know Mm -hmm. what i mean so like every contract gig i've ever really done has been sort of a word of mouth of me being like on the internet hey i'm looking for contract work does anybody know of anybody needs a programmer on this or that or anything and i usually get a few emails you know that's oh here's a small game or here's a app or here's something you know a lot of it comes from other people who do contracting work who just have too much contract work you know, so they look to dole it out to people. And yeah, a lot of it's just networking. It's kind of weird because like, I don't know how it works in other, you know, industries, whether like art or music or anything, but for programming, a lot of it is just, at least for me, has been word of mouth, you know? Yeah. And I suppose it's it's kind of um, like that a lot of the stuff I would do would be in like theater or film or something. And the it's quite difficult to compare though, because like as a writer, I mean, there's too many writers. Nobody wants a writer. You just <laughs> throw another one on the pile. But um with software engineering, I think that's much more akin to like uh, 
like a camera loader or you know a lighting designer or something there's something really practical there as well as artistic as well and those sort of people that i know are always in demand for jobs yeah yeah it's one of those things i often think about it like i don't know if i would have had the courage to quit my job and go freelance and indie if i hadn't been a programmer you know because like i always had that safety blanket in my back pocket of oh, well, if things go wrong and I run out of money, I know I can either get contract work or I can go and get, like, an actual well-paying job outside of games in the software sector, you know? So like, how, do you, um, how do you manage that, though? Like, how do you... Because you have that, there's the difference. There's the, the practical elements and, and the, the sort of more artistic elements of, of making a game. So how do you balance that with... Is it just a case of, oh, I need this much money, so I'll do this job, and then I'll have a chance to work on this game for a little bit or something? Yeah, it's a little bit of that, just sort of back and forth between doing contract work and making money and then doing other things and not making money. You know, like when I first when I first quit my job, because I, I, I worked outside of games when I first graduated college. Um, I was building satellites and working on software for, like, weather satellite stuff and ground processing algorithms for space things and you know I saved up a bunch of money and then I was able to sort of move and transition into games and then eventually I just sort of quit that so I had a lot of savings that I was able to sort of live off of for a while and like supplement that with contract work and it is just sort of back and forth of like oh I am running low on money you know I can't afford rent this month you know or I'm going to soon not being able to afford rent you know so I need to put what I'm doing on hold and work on something else, you know, and, and just sort of the the ever back and forth of whether or not I'm stressed out about money or not is when I start looking for contract games. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, though, that I mean, as, as kind of as stressful a life as that is for any kind of like freelance or contractor, it still affords so much more more freedom in your life and ability to do much more interesting things, I think. Yeah, well, it's funny. So my parents, my my dad and my stepmom lived on a boat for about eight years um, recently. They and and they lived full time on this boat, and they they sailed around, and they traveled, and they. Started oh, so it wasn't like a houseboat; it was like a boat. Yeah, it was a um, it was a catamaran, um, and it was the two of them lived on it. They picked it up in South Africa. They traveled from South Africa to the Caribbean on the boat, and then sailed around the boat for eight years. Um, and what they would do is they, they would meet a lot of people, talk to people, and they'd always tell me about how a lot of people who sort of live on, like, the boat life or, like, you know, the traveling life in the sort of Caribbean or wherever you're at, you know, just sort of the traveling free spirit life, they'd, it would be people would talk about their freedom chips, you know, and those were you would work hard enough to get just enough money to go do what you wanted to do. And then when you're out of your freedom chips, you came back and then you worked some more. And it was always this, like, ever back and forth between having the means to do something that you wanted to do and then using that all up and then going back you know and getting your freedom chips again and i always like that super fun yeah that's really good living on a boat as well how exciting um yeah we're getting way way off tangent straight away which is which is brilliant (laughs) that's fine but let's uh for for the purposes of, of editing and stuff um i'll do like an introduction so uh adriel it is adriel isn't it or is it adriel we had this discussion last time. We, we had this discussion last time, but my internet didn't work, so I don't think I even actually got an, like, an explanation out to you. So I, I've always grown up with Adriel. Okay. Um, but, I've, but I've noticed that people, British people, tend to gravitate towards Adriel, and I honestly don't care, so I just go with whatever. Okay. But Adriel is how I always say it. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll use your, your, it's your name, so let's use yours. So, Adriel, uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, if you don't mind, would you introduce yourself? 
Yeah, um, I'm Adriel Wallach, and I do. Uh, I'm a independent game developer. I do freelance programming and game development, and I also organize a big game jam every year called Train Jam, which is a game jam on a train. That is brilliant. Right, so I mean, this is something that there's been a lot of press over it's it's becoming more and more popular every year the train jam um do you think it's all down to the clever name probably i i'm a firm believer that clever names and puns generally can market themselves they can turn (laughs) any bad idea into a good idea but that's i mean it's just one of those things where you're like of course train jam like so (laughs) was it like that when you had this idea because clearly you've done a lot of train uh, game jams and you're like oh Game Jam on the Train, Train Jam. Yeah, I mean, the name sort of writes itself. Like, I honestly can't remember putting any thought into the name whatsoever. Like, what other name could possibly fit the jam, you know? Like, it's just, it's so, it's so spot on. And I don't know, it was just, hey, I'm going to put a Game Jam on a Train. Train Jam, there we go, trainjam.com, purchased. But was it that quick, though? Was it like, oh, hang on, this would be a fun place to do? Like, where, where did that idea sort of spring from? Basically, so like the the timeline of the conception of the idea to the sales of the first ticket was, so it was it was August of 2013 when I quit my full time job and decided to go solo indie developer, and so I quit my job. And that same week that was the last day of my job, my lease expired at my apartment where I was living in Boston at the time. And I realized that I didn't really want to stay in Boston anymore. You know, I didn't have anything tying to me anymore. Like I didn't have a job. I didn't have like a big personal life outside of friends there. So I let my lease expire, quit my job. I put most of my stuff into a storage unit and then I just packed everything into a suitcase and a backpack and I ended up getting on a train and I took the train from Boston to Chicago. I stayed in Chicago for a day and then I took the train from Chicago to Seattle, um, which was a two-day trip. And then I took a train from Seattle to Vancouver and I went to a conference up there and then came back down for PAX Prime um, in Seattle like the week after that. So I'd spent this huge chunk of time on a train where I had, you know, sort of done this giant leap into nomadic indie game development and I worked on stuff and I played games and all these things and then as I was talking to people at PAX and whatnot, you know, I started telling people about this and, you know, every now and again people I'd talk to would be like, oh, that sounds like the perfect place to do a game jam and I'm like, yeah, it does sound like the perfect place to do a game jam, you know, maybe I should do that and so after PAX, you know, a few weeks later I started looking at group sales at Amtrak, you know, and how that would work and whether it would work at all you know, and it just sort of festered in my brain. And then it was like probably about September or October where I just, I was at, I was in Texas at a friend's house and I just woke up one morning and made the Train Jam website, um, which was like this horrible website. I'm not a good website builder at all. So it was just like this one page of like awful colors and like a link to an Eventbrite where I had like 30 tickets that I had booked from Amtrak, you know, thinking, you know, and I made sure I like looked into all the return policies and everything. And I'm like, okay, well, if nobody buys these tickets, I can refund everything, <laughs> get my money back from Amtrak. Nobody has to know. I even tried, you know, and I, I put the tickets on sale and then I actually got on a plane, I think to Poland. So it was like a 10 or 11 hour flight. Like I put the tickets for sale. I got on a flight and I got off the flight and there was like press coverage and people were talking about it. And like most of the tickets were sold out. That's amazing. I was, like, okay. I was like, maybe this was a good idea. And so I ended up going and booking another 30 tickets from Amtrak and those sold out then after like a month or so. And that was how the sort of first train jam 
tickets got sold. So it was only from like the idea of like August when the idea was you know, planted in my head that I should do this until like October where I put the tickets on sale. And in that time I came up with the name Train Jam. <laughs> that is amazing. And and it's it's gone on to bigger and brighter every year pretty much. Yeah. It? Hey, yeah, was it was in like a couple of hundred or over a hundred this year, right? This year was about two hundred people. So That's crazy. the first year yeah, the first year like I said there were sixty people. The second year was about hundred and thirty and then this year we had two hundred and now for next year I'm in I'm already in talks with Amtrak to just get the whole train. So <laughs> that is that is i mean I, i'm surprised that it didn't happen already so does that mean that you had just you get like random people just walking through the carriages yeah. suddenly like what that's actually that's one of the things that I'm, I'm having the biggest struggle with with the concept of getting the whole train because that's that's historically over the last three years been one of my favorite things about train jam is we we do this jam first of all in a totally bananas location like we're two days on a train barreling through the united states making games but we're there and we're doing it and we sort of take over the train at this point, but there are still normal people coming on the train, you know, people who have just sort of purchased tickets to go on this long haul train ride across the United States. And the kind of people who do that are, you know, elderly people looking for a sort of like a leisurely trip through the United States. It's young families with small children. You know, there's a lot of, um, actually this year we had a lot of people who were either Amish or Mennonite, like people who can't, you know, drive cars across the country due to religious restrictions and stuff like that but they're so laid on a train that, I, I, i've never yeah. thought about that amish yeah. could go on a train that seems I, a bit I, that seems like I, a bit I of a cheat the, i get the rules a little mixed up or not which is why i'm saying it was either amish or right okay, okay because i know i know one can and one can't and i should know this because the area i grew up in is full of mennonite and amish people that i can never keep it straight but you know what i mean so we i do these, yeah it's fine we get we get all these you know random people on the train and 99 percent of the time they get really interested in what we're doing and they ask all these questions, you know, and we get all these really passionate developers telling these people who have no knowledge about the games industry at all, like what game development is, what a game jam is, what an independent game developer is, and sort of like this whole creative process and all this thing that we give all this insight into these people who otherwise never would have sought that out. You know? Yeah, totally. Because like, I always think about the fact that like, if you if you have a game jam and you market it as a public game jam, and you're like, oh yeah, people from the public can come and check it out and see what games are like and this, that, and the other thing, you're going to get a lot of people who already sort of have a predisposition to being interested in seeing it. Whether yeah, it's you're not going to get just random people. One yeah, you're not just going to get random people that you're just shoving it in their face, being like, here's game development. Um, and it's just it's always really interesting to see those interactions between the the random people and the jammers and stuff and I, i've always really liked that you know because i like seeing that sharing of knowledge and oh, absolutely seeing people from all sorts of different walks of life so it's one of the, like my biggest things that i'm super struggling with with getting the whole train because i am going to lose that yeah you know and we still have we'll have like the amtrak employees and the cafe car attendants and stuff and they always get really excited about it and everything so we we still have those tiny little interactions but I don't know, but at this point, you know, it's one of those things, logistically speaking, getting the whole train just makes so much more sense now. Yeah, I, I keep, like, because I, um, I did a show uh, earlier, well, actually, later last year, I can't remember, maybe it was the start of this year, uh, for the Global Game Jam, and I went to the site here in Glasgow, and I spent the weekend with all the, the various jammers, and I just did a show about different teams in the jam, and like, one of the things that struck out to me so much was just the sheer technical 
like setup of it like the amount of computers and and this whole huge hall in the university was just overtaken by rigs and stuff like how on earth do you manage that on a train is there even enough power on a train like that seems a ridiculous question but it it was funny so this year we didn't have as much of a problem with it because i was really strict about reminding people that we're on a train but last year we ended up breaking tripping a lot of the breakers because people would bring power bricks you know (laughs) and then you know load up everybody charging their laptops at once um you know people plugging in their music making equipment you know their tablets this that and the other thing and just like shoving that all into you know one outlet and we'd constantly flip the breakers um, to the point where we ended up just getting access to the to the circuit breaker so we could go fix it whenever we did it. Um, and then this year I was a lot more adamant about like, hey, we're, we're on a train, maybe not do that. Um, <laughs> you know, just charge when you need to on things. And so we, we had a lot less problems with it this year. We also had, we had somebody last year who had built their own, and this was cool, but I think it did trip a lot of the breakers, but we had somebody who um, had their own desktop, portable desktop development environment. Um, so they had had like a, a tower and they had custom put a screen in the side of the tower, you know, and brought a keyboard and stuff. And he did this so that he could build Oculus games. So he had an Oculus dev kit hooked up to this PC tower, portable PC tower with a screen in the side to do his development. And it was the coolest thing. Um, but I don't know, maybe, maybe their power is getting better, too, because this year we actually had uh, we had a few folks from Media Molecule um, yeah. bring, bring Dreams with them, and they had this ridiculous setup in one of the cars that was... They had two TVs, two PlayStation 4 dev kits, like all of their move controllers, all of these things, all plugged into all these power bricks through converters, because they're from the UK, into the, into the train, and they didn't... They didn't run out of power once, like nothing tripped or anything. It was smooth sailing for the two days of them having that set up. So I don't know, maybe some, somewhere on the train there is enough power for all of this. That sounds, that sounds like so much fun. Have you got like a, like a, a I was going to say a train driver's hat then. I'm sure there's a proper word for it. <laughs> But they don't really, um, and, probably don't wear hats anymore, do they? Uh, they wear like they wear caps, but they're not like the cool like black and white stripy ones that everybody thinks. Right, of. that's what yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Um, but it's funny because I actually I have a cap like that. So when I when I graduated from university in 2008, I graduated as an electrical engineer. Um, and my stepmom, who also graduated as a mechanical engineer way back in the day, you know, thought it, when she graduated with her engineering degree as a joke, her dad gave her an engineer's cap because that's what you call them. Right. And it was okay, this okay, black okay. and white stripy thing. So when I graduated, she gave me that same cap. So I have one of the conductor caps somewhere, but I haven't been able to find it yet over the last three years. So I need <laughs> to find it one of these years so I can bring it on to train jam. Yeah, that is that is the final piece of the puzzle, I think. <laughs> Um, I mean, I get I get a really cool wooden train whistle every week. Oh year. well, then that's that's so, pretty good. That's pretty yeah, good. Yeah, it's, it's nice because it's a tradition that uh, Rami Rami started on the first year. Was there's a random middle of nowhere stop in like halfway through the train ride in just this tiny little town, and there's this really stereotypical middle America shop that you can go into. And there are these giant train whistles that are wooden. And so the very first year, he bought one and made everybody who was on Train Jam sign it. And then it's been a tradition ever since. Oh, but now, cool. there's, now that there's so many people, like this year, they ended up just having to initial it because nobody could fit all of their names on there. But it's cool because now I have three train whistles with signatures all over them. 
You need a bigger whistle, clearly. I know. Well, these whistles are huge. I'll have to send you a picture. They're, like, pretty big. That is that is brilliant. Okay, so um, let's, let's, let's go back a little bit, uh, Adriel. So if you can remember, what was your, your very first experience of a video game? Oh, gosh. My very first experience of a video game would probably be... Um, when we got a Nintendo, like the original Nintendo, when I was very little. Um, and whereabouts, whereabouts is this? Um, this is when I was living in Virginia in the United States at the time. Um, and I was probably about like five years old, maybe five or six. I don't, I don't really remember. Um, and I remember not being able to play it, but I remember my dad playing it. And I thought it was the coolest thing when he would crouch and Mario would sort of like hunch down and put his hands on the ground and his little knees and then jump in the air and I'd call it the monkey jump. And so I always make my dad do the monkey (laughs) jump. And I thought it was really cool, but I don't, I don't ever remember playing. I only remember watching my dad and my sisters playing. And so have um, you got like all the sisters then? Yeah. So was that, but was the console, was that like for your dad? Like he bought it for himself or was it like just a family fun you thing? You know, I have no idea because I was so little, but I, I believe it was for all of us, but I remember my dad playing it mostly. Right, okay. Um, and then, and then, you know, quickly we progressed to, we always just sort of had consoles. So like my first like time that I can really remember playing games was when we got a Super Nintendo for Christmas one year, me and my sisters, and we would just play Super Mario World. And we had this, we had this game called Uniracers, which was a racing oh, game. Such a good game. Unicycles. So good. And nobody's ever heard of it. Was um, that an early what? Rockstar game? Oh, or like the, I'm sure it was like DMA design. It was, this, I'm sure it's the same team who did like Grand Theft Auto and stuff. I don't know. I actually kind of want to look this up. I'm going to covertly look this up because I'm curious now. But it was such a good game. Oh, it's brilliant. We'd play it all the time. We had that. What else we have? We had Mario Maker, like with the mouse, you know. Or not Mario Maker. That's the new one. Mario Paint. Um, We had uh, Donkey Kong Country. And we had this this really good pinball game called Super Pinball, I think is what it was called. It was really good, and you play it all the time. And it had these three pinball stages, but it was it was really good. You should really look it up. Um, but yeah, those were that was sort of my first like foray then into playing video games. And then like the first console I ever had that was my own was a PlayStation One, and that's when I discovered my love of RPGs. And did and you I, like purposefully? Were you still living at home then? Did you like this is my console? This isn't yeah, for the family. Yeah, like thing. I was still, you know, I was probably twelve or thirteen when I got the PlayStation One. But it was it got to be in my room with my with my little tiny TV, and so it was mine. But was and that was because like, you loved it? You you did you feel? Did, let me start that again. Was your <laughs> love of games like? Bigger than the rest of? Did you kind of overtake the rest of the family? It's like, no, this is this is what I'm into, so I want one of these. Not really. Like, I would say, I would say both of my sisters still really like games a lot, and we we still play them a lot. Like the the Super Nintendo still lived downstairs and was ours, and we would play it. And by that point, we progressed to like Mortal Kombat and stuff like that. But I, they they were older than me, so I was the youngest. And they were older than me, so they they were in that part of teenagerhood where they had friends and would go out and stuff. So yeah. it was like. I'm going to stay home and play my PlayStation. <laughs> I'm going to live in my room and I'm going to play video games. So what what about the, the PlayStation? Like you said, that, that put your love of um, fantasy games in or RPGs. Was that Final Fantasy VII? 
so the first Final Fantasy I played was actually nine. Um, I skipped over seven, and I got eight and nine at the same time. So like nine had just come out, and I think I got both of them for Christmas. And I, I tried eight because I was like, okay, well this is the lower number, so obviously I have to play this one first. Um, and I tried eight, and I could not get into it. Like it was like an hour or two into the game, and I was just like, no, I hate this game forever. And then I ended up not playing it again until this year, actually. Um, but then I played nine, and nine was just like phenomenal. Like, have you played Final Fantasy Nine? I don't think I have. It's so good. It's just, I think it was. I was the perfect age. Like, I was probably, like, 13 years old, 12 or 13. I was in living in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania at this time, and it was about, like, people going on these grand adventures and saving the world, and, like, it was cute, and there was, like, love, and there was adventure, and it was all these things, and it just, like, blew my mind, you know? And, and Nine was had all these, like, amazing cutscenes, and the music was great, and all, and just, like... I don't know what it was, but it all just hit me all in the right way. To be fair, yeah. that sounds like every Final Fantasy game. I like, know. is there any reason why Nine sort of like stood out for you? I don't. I don't really know because, like I said, I tried Eight first and I just couldn't get into it. And Nine just, I don't know. The art style was exactly what I wanted at the time, and the music was exactly what I wanted at the time. And it just, I don't know. I I just liked everything about it. Like it was there was this whole big world to explore, and there were all these characters, and they all had these. They all had these like really cool interpersonal conflicts with one another, but they were also all on their own individual journey while you know helping each other out. And everybody was sort of like selfless, but in this selfish kind of way. And it just, I don't know. I still, this many years later, I think it's one of the best stories out of any Final Fantasy games. Like it's just, it was so good. Yeah, I, 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 I this has come up on the show a lot because obviously a lot of people mention like one of the Final Fantasy games, like for me 12 is is the best by miles because but because of the system because of the, the gambits and the way you can teach that you make it you're making little machines to make the game play itself basically and i don't really care so much for the story i mean especially 12 which is basically just a total ripoff of uh, a new hope like it's just this star wars um and it's beautiful and the characters are really good fun but it's it's always the the, the game the sort of systems that i really like i, I tend to the I tend to, especially recently, like not care as much about the story generally. Mm-hmm. Um, but See, I'm still a big story person with games. I, I like when I like when games make me feel emotions because I think I think that was also really cool. Was was Final Fantasy IX was the first game I had played that made me feel like actual real emotions about characters in a video game. You know what I mean? Yeah, Cause like totally. up to that point, it was like Mario and Donkey Kong and you know, Mortal Kombat, like I said, you know, and at this point it was like these these characters that I had like gone through this journey with and felt real things about and I felt you know when you read a really good book and then you're done and you feel like you've just lost a friend oh, because absolutely. you're no longer with these people. Like that that's what it felt after Final Fantasy Nine, I think. There was actually like, um a really good article uh, that Keith Stewart um from The Guardian wrote just a few days ago actually uh, about that exact sensation, about oh. leaving games behind like like you would a great book and just feeling 
sad to have left these characters behind. It was off the back of like finishing the Uncharted series, basically. Yeah, yeah. I'll have to read that thing because because I have this problem a lot with with books and with video games now, where it's just like there's there's a mourning period when you're done, when yeah. you're just like I I went on this journey, I went with these people on this life changing adventure with them, and now they're gone, and you have to mourn that. Like you have to go through the stages of losing those people, and they're not real, but they feel real. I think it's I think odd. one of the things I, I think why why Final Fantasy would resonate with that in a certain way I think I always get that feeling most strongly when something has been really long like one of my my yeah. strongest recollections of like when I was a teenager and I read It by Stephen King if you read oh, It oh yeah and it's like you know a thousand odd pages was easily the longest book I'd ever read mm-hmm. and by the time I got to the end of it I was really like saving it down to like the final paragraphs because I couldn't believe this was over because yeah it taken me like at least a month or two to read this book and it, it had been like a daily thing and suddenly you know that's going to be gone from my life yeah and especially yeah, the final fantasy you have this, this this length of time you spend sitting through all these cutscenes and so by the end mm-hmm. of it you're like oh it's part of my daily routine that's going to vanish now yeah yeah it's true it, it, i think it is more when it takes up a large chunk of your life and you know all of a sudden it's no longer there yeah no it's totally it's totally sad so yeah. you're clearly like invested in games by by this point. So were you invested to the point like like did you form friends around games or did you like seek out communities online or through magazines or anything? Or was it very much just a personal thing? It was very much a personal thing. Like I I grew up in a really, really, really small town in central Pennsylvania. Um, like there was probably about two thousand people in my town and that was it. And that was like the closest city was like an hour away. Um, so there wasn't a lot of people and I, not that I didn't have friends, but I didn't have a lot of friends who were also into games or anything. Yeah. Um, and so, and like my, you know, like my best friend growing up, like she would sort of be into video games to the point where like I would bring my PlayStation with me when I'd sleep over at her house and she'd watch me play games and, you know, we'd hang out and stuff, but she was never really super into it. And so I didn't make a lot of friends who played games. I had one friend who played games, and that's who lent me Chrono Cross when he found out that I liked Final Fantasy IX so much. And then Chrono Cross also fast became one of my all-time favorite games. Um, but it, there wasn't really a community of gamers where I grew up or anything, and I wasn't big on to finding communities on the internet or anything. So I was sort of a very like lonesome gamer, you know, even to the point where I got really, really good at Diddy Kong Racing, but I had no friends to ever play <laughs> against. So I was only good at like the time trials and not actually good against other people. Oh, if only um, they were online scoreboards. I know, right? Exactly. So there wasn't there wasn't really a big gaming community that I fell into. And then even though I really loved games and I would sort of like dabble around with the thought that I wanted to make games someday and me and the friend who had lent me Chrono Cross had sort of like been like oh let's let's make a game and we sort of like drew up these characters and that was sort of it you know and then I sort of like fell out with gaming for a while when I went to university so you didn't take your PlayStation away with you or anything no I ended up like and I this is probably one of my biggest regrets is I ended up like in a yard sale before leaving for university was like selling all of my old games and stuff and be like cool now I'll just have some spending money for college and like I'll sell all this stuff in a yard sale I did exactly the same thing such a regret um and when I went to when I went to school then you know I didn't really play too many games and I so so I ended up missing like an entire generation of consoles because I had 
you know, growing up, we had the Super Nintendo, I had the PlayStation 1, we ended up having an N64, and then I went to college about the time that, like, the Xbox came out, and the GameCube, and all that stuff, but I sort of missed that, and, like, the PlayStation 2, you know. That's one of the best consoles ever. I know, I missed that entire generation, because I was in school, and none of my friends really played games other than very casually, you know, and the the guy I was dating at the time didn't like video games, so it's not like I really had anybody in my day-to-day life to play with, you know, and I was in school, and then when I graduated, you know, starting, like, my cool new adult real people job, you know, and, like, I lost sort of all the time I had for games. Did you miss it, though? Did you miss, like, did you think about them and read about them online and things? I did miss games a lot. It was weird because, like, it wasn't part of my day-to-day life, but I always remembered liking games, and every now and again I would download, like, an emulator, you know, and some old games that I really liked and played through them. And eventually I was like, okay, well, I want to get back into playing games, so I bought, I think, a PlayStation 3 um, and all that, and that's when I sort of picked it back up as, like, a hobby again, was playing things, and that's that's then when I finally played, like, Kingdom Hearts 1 and 2 and all those kind of good games. So what did you do in the years off then? Like when I wasn't playing games? Yeah. Just Is that where you went off to like build satellites and stuff? Yeah, that's when I was that's that's when I graduated and I was working for Lockheed Martin and I was doing, you know, software engineering for, you know, database code on satellites and simulation code for data from satellites and stuff like that. I was being an adult, like a real functioning adult in society and stuff. Um. <laughs> but like all of that stuff though like this is what I find interesting because like all of those skills that you would have learned in university that you, you went on to use making satellites which is amazing like all of that was, was programming I imagine there's a strong emphasis on programming yeah so was that was it ever were games ever in your mind when you were learning all that because there's a clearly really. transferable skills so I had I had this like I had this weird preconceived notion in my brain where like To be a real adult, you have to have a real job, and a real job is in an office doing things that, like, contribute to things that people would normally, like, attribute to being an adult. Like, you know, being a software engineer at a big company like Lockheed Martin, or, you know, building software for financial institutions, or, you know, things like that. Like, things that sound very traditionally like a real job, you know? Totally, yeah. Um, and so I had this, and like when I when I very first graduated, and I was looking at jobs, like my first job out of school, there was like this brief moment where I was like, okay, well I'll, I'll apply to, I forget what company it was, but there was some AAA company in Boston that I applied to, and it was, and I applied there, but it was like that weird catch twenty two of, this is an entry level position, but you need three years of experience releasing AAA games. And, and I didn't know anything about indie games. I didn't know that you could just sort of like sit down and like, you know, obviously you can sit down and do whatever you want, but I didn't, I didn't think of it as like a career choice that I could just sit down and make games. And so, but had you never tampered sh- with it though? Like, I mean, if, if you're learning all these, uh, all these programming skills, did you never thought, well, like, I wonder if I could make a game out of this, like just in a, in a, just a hobbyist way. Not really. And that, and it's the weirdest thing looking back on it now for how much, like how, open we all are about game development now, like looking back at, you know, because I was in university from 2004 to 2008, which isn't that long ago, but it was, it was before sort of the indie developer boom, like right before it, you know, it was before people really started taking game development as like a serious job for real people, you know, like my university didn't have a game development course and it was a pretty big university and like, you know, there was 
obviously like little things when I was, you know, whatever projects we had to do for school, like building a tic-tac-toe game or this, that, and the other thing, you know, you think like, oh yeah, I can maybe like make a game, you know, but in my mind it was like this really difficult thing that you had to be super specialized in, you know, because you had to know like graphics programming and AI programming and like have like a PhD. Like this was just like this weird false narrative I'd created in my head about all these like super advanced things you had to know before you could make games and then when i you know like while you're working on satellites though which yeah, is I ridiculous know, I know. it's totally bananas looking back on it now but like at the time i was just like and then you know like i said when i was looking at, at jobs and i the only job postings i would come across would be you know like these AAA companies that said you needed to already have experience at AAA companies so i was like oh well the only way to get a job is to be like really really good you know, and, and I just sort of gave up on it. And I was like, okay, well, that's not for me then. You know, and then it was a few years later when I was realizing I was really unhappy doing what I was doing. As cool as it was, I just wasn't happy with it, you know. And we, I went to PAX East, gosh, 2000, whenever the first PAX East was, I think it was 2010. Okay, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, whenever the first PAX East was, I went there and that's when I met like independent game developers and then I started becoming friends with them and learning more about game development, learning about Unity, learning about indie development, all this stuff. And I was just like, well, there we go. Now I make games. That's a really quick shift and we're going to get to that. <laughs> First, I want to ask you, this is really important, is anything that you've made now in space? Not yet. Um, so, and this was, this was actually one of the reasons why I really didn't like working on big government subcontracting things. So I, I graduated in 2008, and then I worked at Lockheed Martin from 2008 to 2010-ish, and then I switched over to another company where I was doing the ground processing algorithms, coincidentally on the same satellite, um, and I worked there till like 2011, 2012. And that satellite that I was working on starting in 2008 launches this year. Oh, like, that must be quite exciting, though. So you yeah. will have something in space pretty soon. Hopefully. I mean, who knows what all code they've changed since 2008. But theoretically, code that I've written might be in space this that's, fall. That's amazing. Coming this fall. <laughs> but it is like it's this huge, long, long, long project time and i'm just like i can't deal with this i need instant gratification yeah absolutely so is that so you, you got this sort of ps3 and rediscovered this love of gaming so how quickly after that did you sort of decide right i'm gonna make games it was probably a few years after that because we uh, the guy so I, I lived in california at the time when i rebought games and started gaming again and and I was dating a guy at the time, we lived out there, and then we moved back to Boston. Um, and it was about that time when I got a job, like I said, at the company that was doing the ground processing algorithms for that one satellite that I was working on. And it was about that time where I was like, okay, well, I know this isn't what I do, what I, what I want to do. I want to start transitioning to games and seeing if I can do that, you know? And so I started, at that point, started making games on the side. I started going to a lot of developer meetups that were in the area because luckily at that time, Boston was sort of booming. Yeah, there's loads of devs there. And, and indies, they had, and I don't know how much it is now because I, I've been away from, you know, that area for like three years. Um, but at the time, there was this really cool symbiotic relationship that Boston had between AAA and Indies and students, where we'd all feed off of each other at all times. Like we had our local IGDA meetups that would happen once a month. And that was sort of where the students would come to meet the professionals and meet the Indies. Yeah. And we had, you know, Boston Indies, which is where all the Indies would go. And 
you know, show off their games and give talks. And then we had, you know, the Boston Unity Users Group, which is where, you know, Unity developers would come and sort of show cool things about Unity and, you know, what Unity projects were being built in the area. And we all sort of fed into each other. And, like, people would leave the AAA scene and come to the indie scene. People would be hired out of the indie scene into the AAA scene. And it just all sort of, like, fed really nice into each other. So it was a really great place to start out because there were all these meetups. There were all these really smart people. There were all these people doing really cool things. You know, so I was able to learn a lot and then just sort of work on small projects with people. Um, and was and the transition quite easy? Like, did you find yourself getting into making games, like, fairly, not fairly simply, because obviously it's quite complex, but did you find right. the transition quite easy? Yeah, I mean, I think I think one of the things was, like, since I've always sort of somewhere deep down in my heart loved video games and wanted to make video games, like, I was, it was really easy personally to just meet people, you know, and, and share that passion and talk about these things. And then it was easy for me to start making games because, you know, as a competent programmer, um, I was very motivated and driven at the time. So I'm like, okay, well, this is what I'm striving for. I have to, like, I'm going to make things. Like, I would stay up till, like, 2 or 3 in the morning working on little projects or just learning things about Unity, you know, and all these things. And then I'd work, like, on weekends and after work with, you know, people that I met at meetups who wanted to just make this little prototype or work on these things. And it was just, like, this nice amalgamation of, like, passion between creating things and talking to people and just learning things and you know I'm, I'm a fairly self-motivated person so I would be really good at teaching myself things yeah um, and so that went on for like a few years and then eventually there was an indie studio in Boston called Firehose Games who had just gotten a contract with Harmonix which is also in Boston and they needed another programmer and the guy who run Fair and Firehose was like okay well you've, you've been wanting a chance so here's your chance like do you want to come work with us and then I was like, okay. And I quit my job and moved into the indie scene. That is amazing. So, yeah. like, t when you first sort of started thinking, right, okay, I'm going to go and make games, was there, like, a specific game or games that you played that made you think this is possible? Or was it just the, the fact that there was now a community that you could kind of join in and learn from? I think it was mostly the community because, like... Like I said, you know, I, I went back to Boston, I went to PAX, I started meeting indie developers, and it was actually, it was it was the same guy, the guy who ended up hiring me at Firehose, who first, you know, sat me down, because I met him at that very first PAX, and he invited me over to Firehose to um, to do a playtest of their game that they were working on at the time, which was called Slambled Scrappers, and I went over there and did a playtest, and then hung around afterwards and just talked to him about how games are made, because I, I literally just had no idea where to even start, you know, and he sat me down and opened up Slam Old Scrappers and, like, the editor, you know, and just showed me how the game is structured and how it's made and how oh, they go so about cool. doing it. Yeah, it was awesome, and it was, and it was, it, so it was just the community, because at that point that I was like, okay, well, there we go, and then, you know, the next meetup I went to, I met somebody else and, you know, asked them about how games are made, you know, and I started reaching out to people, and one of the nice things about the game development community as a whole is I find that everybody's very open about sharing knowledge, you know, because there was a lot of people who were like, oh, well, let me show you the inner workings of this game I'm working on or the inner workings of this game that I'm working on, you know, and everybody was very willing to just sit down for hours, you know, and just share the knowledge that they have learned over the last few years about how the inner workings of things are to this relative stranger being like, hi, how do I make games? You know, and it was, and it was cool because then people would sort of show me the way and then, you know, I... You know, somebody introduced me to the fact that Unity is free and it is a thing that can help you make games. So I sat down with that and then just started making things. And, you know, it was just this this almost avalanche of knowledge coming in and I'm having to absorb it and then put it to use. That's so exciting. So w when you went to uh, 
was it Flyhose that made was it Rock Band Blitz you worked on for Harmonix yes. yeah yeah I love that game so much really really I mean like I'm not like really like oh it was a bad game but like I'm whenever I say which rock band like I always I always say like oh yeah I've worked on a rock band game and people are like oh cool which one and then I go Rock Band Blitz and they go I've never heard of that one. Oh no like I am uh absolute fiends for harmonics rhythm games and nice. like frequency and harmonic and amplitudes two of my mm-hmm. favorite games of all time and then rock band like rock I, i've probably spent more time playing rock band than any other video game ever like it taught it taught me how to play the drums basically I, I'm, I'm a proficient drummer now because of <laughs> rock band playing and no joke like so long as i've got the the field and the colors and i match them up to the drums i'm fine and awesome. rock band blitz was like it was it was like a, a tease of like oh here's we could make another frequency or amplitude but we're going to do this instead which is a bit simpler but you can use all of your rock band songs by which right. point i amassed a gigantic library of songs <laughs> which i still have and so it, j- just for that it was just this tiny release of something i always wanted and now of course they've they've done the kickstarted amplitude which is also amazing right. yeah it's funny because blitz was obviously the first big game I had worked on and it was cool because I was working at an indie studio because I was at Firehose but we were contracted to Harmonix which is technically still an indie studio but for all intents and purposes yeah. triple studio um, and, and it was cool because then I got to see both sides of it all at once like as my first project where oh, I interesting. had I had the AAA sort of management, but the indie development scene, you know? So it was really cool that my very first foray into game development, I got to see both sides and see which one I sort of felt better with. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was was a really nice introduction into game development, and it was was nice to be on such, like, a big project as my first thing, like, my first real thing. Because, you know, up to that point, I'd made a bunch of, like, little tiny side games that never went anywhere, but... Um, How was the transition like compared to what you'd done previously? It was it was different. It was very different because like I don't think I could have picked two two forms of programming that could be more different. Like if you're working for a government subcontracted programming that is dealing with a eleven billion dollar thing, you're going to strap to a rocket and shoot into space. People are very specific about how you code things. So there's a lot of coding standards. There's a lot of code reviews. There's a lot of peer reviews. There's a lot of meetings about the design. There's a lot of documentation. There's a lot of very meticulous things that you have to do. And yeah. so it's very slow and it's very, very particular. And I like imagine I said, it's exactly the same in game design, right? Yeah, yeah. And so all of a sudden <laughs> I transition into game development where nothing matters. You can, like, <laughs> obviously there's coding standards that people care about, but it's all very, like, personal preference. And if you mess up, you're not going to explode an $11 billion thing the government just paid for. Fair you enough. know, like, there's, it's a very different feeling thing. And I remember, I remember being really slow at it like and not slow like I was bad but it was just I was so used to being so meticulous you know and so like particular like, about how my yeah absolutely that everybody was programming so much faster than me I'm like why is everybody programming so much faster than me and what it was was they didn't you don't actually have to you know, write paragraphs of comments explaining what's going on and making sure all of your names are perfect and like capitalized the right ways. And there's not all this documentation you have to write. And then I, at some point, like I almost had to learn how to program less good in a way. <laughs> like, Does it work? Like, yes. Okay, that's fine. Yeah, exactly. Like, 
and it was, and I remember this, there was one of my favorite moments was when I, um, it was, we were nearing the end of the project and we had, you know, a meeting to go through what bugs we had, this, that, and the other thing. And we were with harmonics going through all the bugs. And I just remember the project manager pulling up the bug tracking system, sorting them all by severity, taking everything that was non-critical and deleting them. And they're like, there we go. Okay, now we have like 100 less bugs. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> no. <laughs> and it was just, it was such a very different environment, but it was, it was fun. You know, it was a lot. Were you just looking around the room shocked? Like, look, and yeah. everybody else is like, whatever. You're like, yeah. you don't even understand. Like, oh what have God, you done? Is, what happened? We're, all the, we're just going to release it with all these little bugs? Like, <laughs> but it was cool because I, you know, I was having a lot more fun. I was feeling a lot more creatively satisfied you know and in doing what i like to do and hanging out with people that i liked and it was it was awesome so i mean you, you talked about this sort of drive that you've had and clearly you're kind of a, a later starter i suppose into the game dev stuff so is this when you started doing your sort of a game a day or was it, it was 365 games you made no it was, game no, a week it was, uh, it was game a week for a year was that around the same sort of time so it was, that was actually, I started that like two years later. So I, I worked at Firehose, I worked on Rock Band, and then I ended up moving to another company in Boston that was more of like a non-original IP, um, you know, factory for programs. You know, I did some interactive apps for museums and stuff like that. It was just sort okay. of like a, a contract contract farm. Um, and then at that point, it was, it was then, like I said, 2013 when I ended up quitting my job and taking a train and leaving and going out west and coming up with train jam and stuff so it was it was then that i really decided like hey i just want to make my own games on my own and do my own thing and it was at that point where i realized i've never worked on a project that was like led by me you know and like fully designed a game myself and that's when i ended up falling into game a week was about 2013. so did you have uh, just a bunch of ideas that you just wanted to work through yeah, it was one of those things where I, I quit my job and I had, you know, I, I had a bunch of savings because I had worked outside of games for so long and I lived very frugally and I saved a lot of money. So I had a, I had a bunch of savings, not like a ton, but enough to live yeah. pretty comfortably. You know, a fair for few a freedom chips. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I, I didn't have like a financial pressure to do anything. You know, I had all the time in the world now because I just quit my job. Um, and I was like, okay, well, obviously, if I have all the time and the money in the world, I can make amazing games. And I have all these really great ideas that have just been festering in my head for all this time. But I ended up getting this, like, weird, I like to call it freedom paralysis, where I just couldn't do anything then because I had too many things I could do. Absolutely, you know, like yeah. I, you know, I was in a position where, you know, I had, I could do basically anything I wanted to do at that point. You know, I could make any game I wanted to make. You know, I could spend months doing things and you know i was traveling around and all these things and i would open up unity and i would sit there like all day and then just not do anything you know like i would browse reddit or i would you know look at funny videos or read comics or just all these things that were just not making a game and i couldn't do it and i just couldn't because everything felt so big you know yeah. all of a sudden because i was all by myself trying to make something that was obviously way too big of an idea like no matter what idea it was it was way too big you actually like one of one of the the fav one of, one of my favorite of the the games that you made during this period is 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 this exact thing that you're describing is the the game dev game where it's, it's like a, the tax adventure and it's it's so um comparable to any artistic pursuit because it's just a, it's like, okay okay i'm ready to go oh hang on though no. i've got a message here oh wait that song's not quite right and it's just you right. in this endless cycle 
of procrastination. It's perfect yeah. and, it's and, and painfully how, true as well. It's amazing how you can fall into that. Because, and I still fall into it too, where I, I sit down, you know, I take away all my distractions, I'm ready, and then I'm like, oh, well, this song is like not helping me concentrate, so let me find a different song. And then you're like, oh, well, now I'm thirsty, and obviously I can't start working <laughs> if I'm thirsty, so I need to go make some tea. And you sit back down, and you're like, oh, well, now I'm hungry, so I need like a like a cookie to go with my tea. And then it's like, you just snowballs, and all of a sudden it's four hours later, and you're like, what did I do? And so, well, it's nothing. time for dinner now. I'll start again tomorrow. Exactly, and yeah. And, and you fall into this thing. And I, I really liked that game, too. It was, it was funny because I made that. It was... I think I was at an event, I think I was at PAX or something, and I totally procrastinated on making a game that week because I was like, oh, I'll do it later, I'll do it later. And then I was like, okay, well, I have no ideas. So I'll just make a game about how I procrastinated all week. Yeah, no, it's so perfect then. It's just such a, like, for those, that kind of thing where you're making these tiny little games, like, it's just a perfect version of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a really, like, 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 a, like a poem or something. It's just here's, here's a little idea presented in this way. And it's yeah. super simple, but it works super well. Um, yeah, but it was it was good because like uh, the whole the whole game a week thing was just born about the fact that it it turns out it's really hard to make things when you give yourself total freedom. Oh you know? yeah. And and like I said, I would, I would, I'd been struggling and just sort of not doing anything, and it was it was Rami again who had been watching me struggle, and he was just like, "Well, why don't you take the idea you have, and you give yourself one week to work on it, and then when you're done with it, you throw it away, and that's it." And then you have to move on to something else. I'm like, okay. And then I did that. And then it just sort of snowballed into this. I'm going to do this for a year and come up with all these cool rules about things that I have to do for it now. Um, but it was good. It was a really interesting experiment for an entire year of just every single week make something completely different and new. So I want to talk a bit more about um, just some, some games. Like, so during this period when you, you, you've kind of made this huge change in your life, basically, and gone back into development like were there were games still impressing you and making a huge impact on you in the same way they would have done when you were younger and what sort of games were kind of hitting you yeah i'd say so i one of i would say at that time period one of the games that really hit me hard was thomas was alone oh really Uh, yeah so i when I made that transition, the initial transition in, or no, yeah, when I made the transition into indie development, you know, I was also going through a bunch of like personal junk and stuff, you know, and so life was. It's so always a like, good motivator for a big. Change. I know, right? Yeah, it was. It was. That's what when people ask me like how how to make transition into indie game develop, I'm like, well, if your entire personal life falls apart, it's really easy to just <laughs> go and do whatever you want, like. That's all you really need is your quarter-life crisis to come along. Um, and so at that time, I was, I was going through all this stuff, and, like, it was it was just this very emotional period in my life. And, and I don't know what it was about Thomas Was Alone, but I think it was it was this whole story of, of friendship and helping each other that just, like, hit me super hard, you know. And so it was, it was one of those games that just sort of, like, had that impact you know, Such beautiful me. narration as well. Oh god, so good, and so and and I just sort of and so like that one really hit me, and then it was just you know little tiny indie games like that that I would start you know playing and, and ended up having like more stories and stuff like that. Um, and it was also at this point where I then decided to go back, and you know how I said I, I missed the whole like Xbox, oh, okay, yeah, like PlayStation Two sort of era is when I went back and I was like, okay, well I'm gonna go back and play all those games I never played. So I ended up playing through all the Halo series and all the Call of Duty and stuff like that, like all those things that I sort of just like missed in that generation. 
um, Gears of War and all those. Did any of them kind of stand out to you? Be like, oh man, this is amazing. I mean, Halo, Halo was nothing like I thought it was. Like, I had just sort of completely ignored Halo, and I was like, oh, well, it's just a shooter. Like, it's a military shooter game, obviously, you know. And then I sat down and played it, and I'm like, wait, this is like this really great sci-fi, like, story-driven shooter game that is amazing, yeah. you know. And, I, and it blew my mind, because in my in my mind, we were... In my mind, I thought Halo was like, were these space marines just killing each other just you know whatever to be fair it kind of did end up a bit like that but at the start certainly it was so amazing the campaign mode just totally blew my mind because it was just I was not expecting like I said this really great sci-fi story you know it's one of those things like you see in games a lot where you in movies as well you're getting it increasingly is that there'll be a film or a game which had just such a really unexpectedly brilliant story like halo is still one of my favorites and then they just keep making them and it just gets worse and worse not not the games themselves but just the story because it becomes lore and it becomes myth you know this is obviously entirely my my personal opinion but it just i don't i don't care about lore (laughs) lore is the, the worst thing in the world like i barely care about stories in games but something like halo where it it just it it marries what you're doing with what's happening so well and it just everything gets heightened because of that yeah Uh, i sort of i go back and forth with like background lore so like i love stories and games and i really like when gameplay and a story mesh together like you said like how halo does yeah um but lore like the kind of lore you have to go searching for i i sort of go back and forth with like i couldn't care less about anything outside of the games for halo you know, like any things that you would have to read in a book or a comic book or anything with Halo, yeah. I'm just like, whatever, that's extra fluff, you know. But, like, for example, when I played, like, Chrono Cross for the first time, I obsessively went out and looked for, like, fanfic and, like, you know, pictures people had drawn of it and just, like, all these, like, almost made-up stories of the lore that has nothing to do with the actual game, you know, and I, I became obsessive with all that kind of stuff. I but never then, played Chrono Cross, so I never played Chrono Trigger. Are they, uh, they are kind of same, or like a sequel to the other, right? Yeah, so they very loosely connected sequels. Um, like, I would almost hardly not connect them at all, in a way, other than they are somewhat connected, again, in the lore. Okay. Um, and I, I, I played Chrono Cross before I played Chrono Trigger, and I think in, in true JRPG fashion... That is why I like Chrono Cross more than Chrono Trigger because it's always it's always the first one you play of yeah. anything that that affects you, um, and so Chrono Cross Chrono Cross is right up there with Final Fantasy IX as like top tier game that has affected my emotional well being in life um, throughout my gaming career. Um, it's it's another one of those games that is people going on a grand adventure, saving the world, having these interpersonal conflicts and relationships with a fantastic soundtrack like the greatest soundtrack i think out of any video game ever um and it's just it's very story driven it meshes everything well together i really like the battle system um i would highly recommend it it got sort of a lot of flack because there's a ton of characters in it and for some reason a lot of people really didn't like the notion of having 40-ish characters that you could potentially get throughout the game Um, okay but it was still like team team battles and stuff. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. X you moves have, or whatever it's you know, called. 
yeah, you could have three people on your team at a time and stuff. But there was, I don't know, I just, there was a lot of interesting characters. I mean, some characters were obviously very, like, fluff characters that you could get, that you had to go on, like, these really out-of-the-way side missions to go and get. But, I don't know, I liked them all, and I really liked the universe that it created and stuff like that. And there was this really cool character, and I, I haven't really seen, I hadn't seen a, an RPG do it up to that point, really, but there was a character you could collect that would then evolve depending on how, like, what elements you fought with with it. Oh, cool. Um, and so it would, you know, either grow into this sort of, like, demon-y looking thing or an angel-y looking thing depending on what, because, like, in, in Chrono Cross, you know, there were elements that you could fight with, you mm-hmm. know, the red, blue, white, black elements. And depending on what elements you fought with this one character with, you know, they would end up growing up with different powers and different evolutions, which I thought was really cool because I also like Pokemon way back in the day. And so evolution things are always just like, yay, Pokemon. Um, and it was a very like little Pokemon-esque character. And I thought that was really cool because I hadn't really seen like a, a big JRPG do that since like up to that point. Yeah, they. I mean, they don't really do that. Like generally, yeah. they, they don't do, they haven't embraced the kind of um, branching narratives and even like the sort of basic good and evil stuff that a lot of games do now yeah. you've never really got that in in japanese games it is always here is the story and you yeah. play through the story there's very very little i suppose like actually chrono trigger is one of the, the rare exceptions because there's like mm-hmm. what like 10 different endings depending on what yeah. you do yeah yeah i think there's i think there's nine or ten and then chrono cross also had like 10 to 14 or something i forget how many different endings it had um i remember obsessively like trying to get all the different endings like that was my first real experience with gamefacts.com was whatever it was like 2000 you know 1999 2000 or something looking up the different endings you could get with chrono cross and how to get all of them and then just sitting and like printing them out on paper and then taking them over to my playstation <laughs> that is lovely i've actually just been doing that recently with uh, dark souls <laughs> and then realizing I would have never figured that out. Yeah. <laughs> They're buried really deep, and I don't really understand the relevance <laughs> of any of them. But it's so much fun to fight being, the bad guys. I just remember being so impressed with GameFacts.com because it was like, you know, this was before the internet was big, you know. It was, oh, totally, it was, yeah. It was, the, it was the time, like, we still had dial-up internet, so I couldn't be on the internet and, and get phone calls at the same time, so my mom would always make me, you know, not be on the internet if I wasn't using it. So, like, I'd have you know, go sign in, wait for it to load, find these these walkthroughs that these people put together by playing this game countless amounts of time and just figuring these things out, typing it all up in these giant text documents. I know, it's yeah. always like, who, who are these people? Yeah. Like, these legendary people spending all this time doing this? For no right. reward, really. Yeah, and I feel like it's, it's, it's a lot, I mean, it's probably still hard now, but it's got to be a lot easier with, like, you know, crowd-based knowledge and different tools that you can use to, you know, get into games and, and try different things and replay things and save points, you know, are not as spread out as they used to be. So, like, you know, if you wanted to try and do things a billion times back in Chrono Cross, you always had to start from whatever the last save point was. You know, it was just like, how do these people figure all these things out and how do they have all this time? And it's amazing. Oh, no, it's it's, it's wonderful. I mean, obviously, I mean, I don't, I don't actually remember the last time I went to GameFAQ, so I don't know if people still do that now because there's, yeah. like, every site has... Of various guides to various games. It's it's still game facts that I go to if I need to look something up about a game, and I'm I'm a lot more like reluctant about it because I think when I was a kid I was like, oh, I, I want to know all these secrets, I want to know all these things. But now as an adult, I'm more appreciative of like spoilers and like figuring things out on my own. Okay. You know, so I go there 
I think with more trepidation than when I was a kid, but it's still like the place I go if I want to look something up with how to do something on a game. It's YouTube now all the time, and it's it's always you go to YouTube and then you just look at the the comments because there's no reason to watch a five minute video <laughs> for him to tell you this one thing that you need to figure out. Exactly. Um, so you were clearly like back into games though, and you you were loving games again. Like the fact that you had started making them, did that change your relationship at all? now it has especially now that I've gotten more into design and stuff like that like there's a lot more there's a lot more I feel pressure that I put on myself that when I'm playing a game I have to be like analyzing it and figuring out what works yeah. and what doesn't work and how they came to that conclusion and, and this and the other thing and all these things that I feel like I'm supposed to be thinking about and sometimes I forget to just enjoy the game you know what I mean no, exactly uh, yeah and but, so I, I try I try to make it a point to enjoy a game when I'm playing it and think about it later. But yeah, sometimes I just feel like I get stuck in that trap where I'm like, okay, well, how does this work? What is this doing? Or, oh, I'm going to go over here to this wall and see, you know, just technically, is there a wall over here? And why is there a wall over here? You know, like stuff like that. That's, that's like how speedrunners start. Mm-hmm. Just tearing apart a game. <laughs> uh, yeah, th- th- that, that, that begs an interesting question. Like a lot of your... Uh, the games that you've sort of spoken about as, as meaning something to you, they're all quite story-driven and stuff, but are there, uh, was there ever, like, a game you were very competitive about, or just very good at, like... Ooh. I don't know, I've never really been a super competitive gamer, I guess. I was I was really good at Super Mario World. Like, I know that's not a competitive game, but when we when we got Super Mario World as kids... We played the crap out of that game. Like we got through all the Star Road and we got all the secret things and everything. And I was really good at it. I remember being really good at it. And I always remember being less good at it now when I play it. And that's always very frustrating to me <laughs> um, because now I can't get through like any of the Star Road levels at all because they're all way too difficult. Um, but there was never I, a game that you were like, oh, "I'm the best at this game," aside from Super Mario. Not like I would say. I know a lot about certain games. So, like, Castlevania Symphony of the Night was one of those games that I played obsessively as a teenager as well, and I'm I'm pretty sure I know every secret that has ever existed in that game. You know, like, that was one of the few games that I sat down and actively tried to break, like, because I knew that there were bugs where you could get outside of the castle at certain points, so I'd sit down at, like, every single door and try and do this glitch and get through and just so that I could fill up my map because as you explored new areas in Symphony of the Night it would fill up your map yeah. and it would give you a percentage of how much of the game that you did and I knew by looking at game facts that you could actually get your map up to like 211% completed as long as you did all the glitches properly and I remember trying really hard to just find any little tiny nugget of that map that hadn't been explored so I could try and get like above 211% and be like look there's a new, there's a new <laughs> so clearly you are quite competitive about games then I guess I don't know it, it depends on the game because like I, I've never there's not a lot of other games that I've actively tried to break like why was why was that do you think like when when was that that was oh god when did Symphony of the Night come out that was late 90s early 2000s when did Symphony so that, that was kind of before university and stuff Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was probably 14, 13, 14 years old. Um, Why do you think that one uh, struck such a chord? 
I think that was the first game that blew my mind with something because it was it came out. Yeah, 97 is when all the good things happened. That was the year Titanic came out. That was Symphony of the Night. <laughs> I believe that's the year that Final Fantasy VII came out. Hansen was real big at that time. 97 was a good year. Are you, um, are you still a big fan of Manson? Hansen, sorry, <laughs> not Manson. Very different bands. Not really, but, you know, they were pretty good. They were good in the day. A cousin of mine um, is, like, mad into Hansen. Still? And, still yeah and it's like this is crazy like, they only I mean, had that one were, song surely yeah but they and it was were a great really song talented like they and they are still talented like i i did look up a video of them like in the last year or so and like they are very talented young men or i guess not young men anymore they're all my age but like they they were good they were really good at what they did so good on them for still being good oh i have um, nothing against them <laughs> but I, I only know that one song and it is it's a remarkable song but still they, yeah, I mean, their whole CD was pretty good. I'm not going to lie. I had every CD that they came out with over the next few years from that point on, but it was good. I, I, I always find it surprising that they, they actually had the catalogue. They're one of those bands that they exist yeah. for that one moment, and then they go. They actually had um, a Christmas album that they did that I remember getting that was really, really good. I just, and I would listen to it all year round, even though it was a Christmas album. Um, but it was like that time... that that time in life where like every pop group was doing a Christmas album. Like that was also the year I think Backstreet Boys came out with their Christmas okay, album. Okay. Same Christmas album and Mariah Carey's Christmas album. That, that is yeah. a good Christmas album. Yeah. Yeah. That one's really good. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so Symphony of the Night. Yes. <laughs> um, it was, it was the first game that I remember blowing my mind because what happens in that game is you play it and you go through the whole castle and you do all these things and then you beat the last bad guy and the game is over. And then I was like, cool. And then that was a really cool game. I'm really excited about it. And I remember, you know, you'd look at the thing and you're like, oh, you're like 100% done. And you're like, cool. The save game is telling me I'm 100% done. I'm totally done with it. And then I remember going on Game Facts and just sort of looking some stuff up about it. And people started, and like everything was like twice as long as I felt like it should have been. And it was saying things about how you can get 200% done. And I'm like, what? Like, yeah, you can kind it. of start like, it again with the castle upside down. Yeah, and stuff, like, how right? can I do it? And then it turns out if you beat the last bad guy in a specific way, getting these glasses and not actually beating the last bad guy, you beat the thing that is controlling the last bad guy that you can only see with these glasses. And then the whole upside down castle comes down, and boom, you have a whole second half of the game that you didn't even know that you were striving for. And I remember, like, when this castle came down, and then I went to it, and it was the same exact castle, but upside down, and everything worked so beautifully upside down. And then you saw all the really cool design decisions that went into making the castle still work upside down. It just, like, I was just like, holy crap. Yeah. What else is this game hiding? I have to find all the secrets. <laughs> no, that is fair enough. That is like I only played Symphony of the Night when they re-released it on Xbox 360, right. I think, a couple of years ago. So I completed it, and then I did much the same. I looked up, and I was like, all right, this is a whole other thing. And I was like, I'm never going to do that. <laughs> and just moved on <laughs> to the next game. Maybe if it hit me younger, I definitely Yeah, that's what done. you need to be, like, 12 or 13, where you yeah. have all the time in the world, and you're like, what? This is so cool. And you're not jaded by the rest of the world yet. And Oh, man. Know. I'd be so good at Destiny if I was, like, 13. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I play a lot of Destiny now anyway, but, yeah. I think we would all be way better at every game if we were still 12 years old. I'm still really good at amplitude and frequency and stuff, though. Like, yeah. like top tier, like top, <laughs> top 100. I'm top 100 in the world at the minute on amplitude. Wow. I actually... 
I, I downloaded Blitz again the other day just to try it out to see if I could still play it because we played it a lot when testing it and stuff, and I was awful. And I'm just like, well, I suck at this game now. I'm now I'm done. That's Quit. one of the few games where I got to number one in the world very briefly <laughs> on the expert mode of um, Under Pressure by Queen. Nice. Because me, a friend of mine and myself got into a really quite titanic score battle um and that was the, there's like a, a drum section at the end of that where if you nail the whole song and then nail the drum section you just get countless points and we both <laughs> gradually started incrementally going up until we were like the best in the world and nice. that one song on this one game that people don't really remember that well but I, nevertheless I was, number, I was number one at one point on rock band blitz because i could play it before it came out and I was the only person on the leaderboard. So, there we go. <laughs> that is just as good. And probably uh, a bit a bit cooler, in fact. Um, yeah. So, when... I, I mean, I, don't, I, I suppose, like, what happened next? So, you had the Game Jam. You had this sort of game three, six... Uh, this sort of game a week. Then, what sort of... Was there, like, bigger projects that you were thinking about at the time that you were looking to work on? So I've worked on, since, since Game of Week and sort of during Game of Week, there's been a few projects that have sort of like come in and I'm like, oh, this is going to be the big thing I work on. And they sort of fizzle out, you know, as, as creative things often do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've had, I've had a few like false starts where I'm like, okay, well, this is going to be the game that is going to be the big game that I release in like two years or something. And then it sort of dies out. And I try again, and then there's, you know, there's obviously some games that I did during Game of Week where I was like, oh, maybe I can turn this into a bigger, like, full commercial release and everything, but I, I'll i come back to it in a little bit when I have more distance from it, and then I sort of not come back to any of them. And at this point, I've actually had to just sort of switch over to almost full-time contract work just to get finances sorted out again um but there's always there's always like little projects that are sort of prototyping and writing down like i have all these little tiny notebooks that i'm constantly sketching little things in and everything so at the moment the big project is adriel needs to be able to pay rent um, yes and but you're in the the netherlands now why why are you there how is that it's really cool. I mean, I've, I've, I've lived a lot of places in the U.S. I've never lived outside of the U.S. This is my first time escaping escaping my country and living somewhere else. And it's, it's nice, and I really like the Netherlands. It's like... Oh, it's a really cool place. It's this really small country, which is amazing, because, like, I'm, I'm so used to the U.S. You know, it's gigantic. You can't possibly get a handle on the whole country. And now I'm here in this little tiny country that's like, if you have a car, you know, two hours in any direction, you're out of the country. Yeah. Um, and it's nice because I feel like I can understand the whole country in a way that I never felt like I could with the U.S. And everybody is just generally happy here, you know, and everything is flat. And yeah, no hills. Nice. I think that's why. It's just like, and everybody rides their bicycles. I really like the food because it's all cheese. And like, <laughs> it's just, I don't know. It's just, it's this small, cute little country where everything makes sense and everybody seems somewhat happy, which yeah. is cool. And like, and it's funny because like, I feel like their quality of life here is really good. And so they complain about really funny, small things. So like when the train is late at the station, every single Dutch person gets really huffy. You know, and they start, like, pacing around, and they start looking at their watches. Like, the, the second the minute hand takes over and the train is late, everybody's just like, <sighs> they look at their watches, and they look at the clock, and they look at their watches, and they start pacing around, and everybody gets really... And then, like, you know, a minute later, the train shows up, and everybody's happy again. Or, like, 
one of the common things when you talk to Dutch people is they start complaining about the weather. And I'm just like, the weather here is almost always gorgeous. Like, it rains sometimes, maybe, like a normal place does. But for the most part, like, it's just these beautiful sunny days with these amazing sunsets that you can see for miles because everything is so flat and gorgeous. Yeah. And it's like, it'll rain one day and people are like, oh, the Netherlands, or the Netherlands, <laughs> the weather is such, you know, crap all the time. And I'm like, what are you talking about? It's great. It never really gets below freezing all that often. It doesn't get super hot in the summer. Like it's a great country. I really like it, it here. Is, it is. I, I mean, I've, this is this is entirely anecdotal. I'm sure there are terrible people <laughs> in uh, in the Netherlands, but my my auntie used to live there. She she married a, a Dutch guy, and they lived there for years. And a couple of years ago, my mum went over to visit her, and they're both like they were both probably in their seventies at this point. And my mum was her flight was delayed, so she was late, and neither of them had a mobile phone, obviously. And so my auntie just assumed my mum wasn't coming and went to bed. And then my mum turned up and was knocking on the door, couldn't wake up my auntie at all. <laughs> so my mum just went to the house next door and said, look, I'm really sorry. I'm supposed to, and she can't speak Dutch, of course, right. but obviously the person in the house could happily speak English. Um, and so they just invited her in and let her stay the night and yeah. she can try again tomorrow. That's, like, that's to be fair, one. my mum isn't a very threatening person, but nevertheless, <laughs> that's a really kind gesture. Yeah, no, I've I've continuously noticed that everybody I meet here is generally nice and helpful and and everything and I don't know like I've, I'm like you said I'm sure there are mean and nasty people here but I don't really run into them all that often <laughs> so so why uh, why are you there You're like what brought you to the Netherlands uh well I you know started traveling around more with Rami and he's from the Netherlands and then eventually we got an apartment together so now I live here. Oh, cool. So you, yep. you came for a boy. Yep. <laughs> but it's funny because, like, both of us travel so much that we're only really here, like, half the year anyway. So, like, it would, you know, everybody's always just like, well, what's the point of having an apartment then? I'm like, well, it's always nice to have somewhere to put your bag down Absolutely. at some point. And it's a nice place, so yeah. you can enjoy the times that you're there. Exactly. I don't know. I, I like living here, even though I'm only really here, like, half the year anyway. But it's a good place. So what uh, what else is going on? I suppose like what what are your your plans for the future? Are you excited about the future? Are you making some sort of VR game? I should. We have we actually have a Vive dev kit set up in the living room right now. There was one spot in our house that was big enough to have a Vive set up, and it was in our living room. So it's just like there's this empty space between the kitchen and the couch where nothing goes anymore because that is where the Vive is. So, and I haven't had a chance to like play with any development stuff yet for it, but I should. I really should. Maybe I'll do that this afternoon. <laughs> Is it fun? Do you like it? The vibe? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really cool. It's it's probably one of the best VR headsets out there right now because it's just there's something about being more fully immersed in the world with like the hands and the ability to move around and the tracking system and stuff than you know than something just as simple as simple quote unquote as the Oculus you know where it's just the headset um, and it's really cool watching people experience the vibe for the first time and you you put them in you explain how it works and you boot up like Tilt Brush which is the you know painting program where you can paint in 3D and watching people do that for the first time where they just like they make a paint stroke and then they realize that they can do things in 3D and then they make like a circle and they start making a sphere you know and you see them like walking around and, and doing their things and just like seeing people interact with it is just so cool 
Um, I'm so jealous. Like this is one of those things. Like I know a few people now that have got like various kind of VR setups, and I've I've still yet to try one. And all whenever I speak to them, I'm like, well, why aren't you just in that right now? Like, what are you doing? You've got this whole world of brand new technology, and you're you're talking to me. What are you doing? Go and play in the vibe now. You very quickly. I want to say get jaded. I don't think jaded is the right word, but you very quickly become used to the idea of being in VR, you know? And I and I forget because between between me and Rami, we have like every dev kit you could have, I think, at this point. Um, and so I, I forget that not everybody is a household full of two game developers who have access to these cutting edge systems you know and so <clears throat> i always forget that there's a lot of people out there who have not been inside the vibe yet um and it's cool and it's amazing but like it's just one of those things where i'm like oh, okay well yeah that's a thing that exists yeah you know? i mean i think that's true of like every piece of technology like the iphone isn't even that old and it's just like yeah. oh, it's an iphone yeah it's, a, it's it's one of the most amazing things in the world and it's like yeah whatever it's um so I've got a few more sort of like they're not really fast-paced questions they're just lightning vague round questions i suppose yeah but it, it never turns out like a lightning round um so hey i want to ask if, if it's not too personal i want to ask about you you and rami because i think you are probably the the cutest uh, couple on twitter <laughs> like like ever pretty much if you follow both of you it's like oh geez come on guys do we get like a little like badge that we can put on our twitters then as like cutest couple on twitter i i think i think if you put it out to the vote especially among <laughs> sort of the, the video game community they would 100 percent vote for it so like I'm, I'm what i'm looking for here is some sort of <laughs> beautiful video game enhanced love story like in a previous episode uh, uh kirsten kearney told this lovely story about how she met her future husband in i think he was like rainbow six or something which, which is lovely like i mean th- this is this is the gold i'm looking for you don't have to talk about you know you don't have to uh, this isn't a competition i'm just i'm, I'm aiming <laughs> i for, need to win i'm angling for cute <laughs> stories about games well so we met um it was PAX East, the 2013, and what happened was was that was the first that was the first PAX where um, the mega booth, the indie mega booth at PAX was like a big thing. Okay. Um, and both of us were helping on that at the time. I was helping out with you know doing back end web programming for the website. And he was helping out doing PR and marketing for Megabooth. And so we'd sort of met online just through various meetings that we had, you know, with everybody on the Megabooth stuff, uh-huh. you know, and working out. And then <clears throat> Pax came around and he flew over because he had a booth. Sorry, I'm going to drink of water really quick. You know, so he flew out. And that's where I met him for the first time on um, the Thursday night before Pax started. And we met and we chatted a little bit and we talked about sandwiches and whether or not you could have a Skype conversation long enough that you could have a buffer overflow on the time counter and stupid stuff like that. <laughs> and then um, I didn't go to PAX that Friday because I had work because I had a real job. And then that night, Friday night, we were at a party together for PAX and he was saying that he was just totally exhausted because it was just him at his booth, you know, and he had nobody to help or do anything. And I was like, well, you know, I'm going to be at PAX over the next two days. Like, why don't why don't I just help out at your booth? I'm not really planning on doing anything. And he was like, sure, that'd be great. 
So then I came over and I helped out in the booth and we started talking more and we got closer. And then, you know, GDC was after that. We hung out a lot at GDC. And then over the next few months, we like talked a bunch, but then, you know, had a few, you know, months where we didn't talk at all, you know, because we were both dealing with, you know, random personal stuff as well. And then I went indie and I started traveling around more and then I started traveling with him and then the rest is sort of history. So it is like this, like sort of like video game related thing where we met in an event and I decided to help out at his booth and no there's definitely like a indie game the movie sort of romantic comedy in there somewhere just bumping into people at various uh, conferences and stuff yeah it was just this total like flipping like hey I know I I can't even have breaks to go eat anything because my booth will be unattended and I was like oh I'm not doing anything I can help you're cool (laughs) what's your game you made again yeah, so this is interesting, actually. Like this, this is because obviously, like he's he's a very successful game developer. He's made some brilliant right. games. Did you, did you like? Had you played his games? And if not, <laughs> did you then go home and be like, right, I need to play this game and get good or something? So it was actually it was right after Ridiculous Fishing had released. It was maybe a month after Ridiculous Fishing had released, and I had heard of it, but I'd never played it, and I'd never heard of any Vlambeer game before that. Like I. I had heard the name Vlambeer through the grapevine and been like, okay, this is an indie studio that does things and I should pay attention to them to like learn some stuff, you know, but I didn't really know much about them as a company. I'd never really played their games or anything. Um, so like there wasn't like this weird, like starstruck, like, oh my gosh, this yeah, is yeah, yeah. Vlambeer. I need to help them. It was just, I'm like, oh, okay, cool. You made a game about what? Fishing? Okay, cool. I can... <laughs> I can help with that, and he he always tells the story about how, like, how he always used to, like, impress people by being like, oh, I make video games, you know, and then when we started talking, I said about how I used to work on satellites, and he was like, oh, well, okay, you win. <laughs> That's brilliant. Um, so it was cool. It was nice, because we just sort of met doing things that we liked, you know, helping out with the Mega Boost stuff and everything, and we just got closer through that, and then eventually... We were like, "Hey, we really like each other. Let's let's hang out all the time and be really grossly adorable on Twitter." <laughs> that is excellent. Okay, another <laughs> another quick fire question. Um, what one of the you're talking about? Like you love games that make you sort of feel certain emotions, and one of the ones that I think is the the rarest, and I try and ask everyone about this is, uh, can you remember a game that's really made you laugh, and not like just oh that's clever and a bit of a smirk, but properly barely laugh. Oh, that's a good question. Good job. Thanks. Um, I know that there is a game, and I'm trying to think of what game that would be. But I am sure there is a game that has made me laugh a lot. It's really tricky. Like the the, the only ones that I, that generally come to mind are the kind of either glitches because they're hilarious, or like kind of uh, slapstick sort of games, like. Yeah. Um, Quop uh, or something. It is Quop, isn't it? That's the one. Yeah, the, there the was. Funny okay, I've, I've got two answers now. Okay. The the first is actually going to be Quop, um, but not Quop itself. But there was this one time that it was me and a bunch of friends, and we were hanging out playing Quop, and we decided to put really really dramatic music YouTube videos on, like <laughs> like, the, like the old like opera, like really really dramatic, like striving like to achieve things and then just play quap along with that and just the combination of of the people i was with quap being quap and then the dramatic music was just <laughs> like 
mind-bogglingly hilarious and i I don't think it was one of those it was one of those nights where like i went home with my stomach muscles like hurting (laughs) because i've been laughing so hard um and then my other answer is gonna be the jackbox party have you like party never even heard of that no so it's it's a party game um and so you download it and and you know people you actually play it with your phone or tablet or computer or whatever. Um, so you download it, you open it up on your console or whatever, and then you start a game, and then people pull out their phones and they can sign in to play the game and everything. And it's just this party game, and it has a bunch of different games in it, but the ones that are really good, there's one called Drawful, which is basically Pictionary, but virtual. Um, and then there's, um, oh my gosh, I'm totally blanking on the other game that is really good which is called Quiplash. Um, but they're just they're really, really solidly good party games. And when you get the right group of people playing it, it just becomes hilarious. Um, it's really hard to explain if you've never played it before, but you should go download the Jackbox Party Pack and get yeah, a bunch of really good. Yeah. I just looked that up. Yeah, that looks super Yeah, fun. Drawful is really good. Quiplash is really good. Um, there's another one. Name me some of the games that are on there. Uh... Fibbage. Fibbage. Fibbage is great. Oh, it Definitely. is like a. I was thinking they said like you don't know Jack, and it is kind of yes, like a, a new version of that. Yeah, yeah, oh, it's really really good. good, and it just it's a really good party game, and it's really good for people who people who are huge gamers, and then people who are not gamers at all. Like it's just they're very solidly done. They're hilarious. They create a, a really good environment for people to be funny with their friends, um, and it's just it's good really good i've had some of just like my biggest laughs playing my game that sounds uh, the the co-op with the operatic music is (laughs) is just the best there was one time a couple of years ago it wasn't actually it wasn't that long ago embarrassingly and uh it was a party at somebody's house and someone started playing diablo 3 um and do you know their benny hill music Yes. The sort of chase music that would always play mm-hmm. in Benny Hill. Someone just started playing that through the stereo while someone was playing Diablo. And it was hysterical because oh, they had, they queued up a playlist. So it, was, it wasn't it was just the Benny Hill theme. It was like they started to turn into like remixes of it. And after about the 10th run through, it just it just became like, like you said, like your, your, your stomach muscles were aching from laughing so much. Yeah. That's so good. Um, okay. I think we've covered all sorts of really good, interesting things. But in yeah, case there's we've anything, the whole uh, gamut. we have. But in case there's anything I've missed or anything you wanted to talk about that hasn't come up naturally, then please do. Let's bring that up right now. I'm trying to think. We we literally talked about all the things. Well, then that is a very satisfying ending. Then are you, are you cool <laughs> with that, Adriel? Adriel, yeah. sorry, Adriel. <laughs> really don't mind. I I always imagine it's just people's accents, like. You you say tomato, I say tomato, I say Adriel, you say Adriel. Well, let, let's let's call the whole thing off. <laughs> Good ending. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks.